This episode was recorded in 2022. Welcome to the Spring Back Guide podcast, formerly known as the New Leaf podcast, where I share the stories of a bunch of amazing women whose professional lives and identities have all been transformed for the better by becoming a mum. My name is Letty, and I'm the founding coach of the Spring Back Guide, created to get you back to work happy after your baby. This podcast is made for you. Ready to dive in? Okay, let's go. Gives me great pleasure to welcome Anna Kent. Hi, thanks so much for having me. You are so welcome. How is your day going so far? Oh, it's good. I got my little one to school on time, so that's always a good win. She's five now. Did a couple of errands in the office and managed to make a cup of tea. So yeah, I think I'm winning today. Definitely winning. So where are you in the world right now and what can you see in front of you? I live in Weymouth in Dorset. I've only been here probably about three or four years or so. Before that, I was in, I lived on a canal boat in Nottingham. So I haven't been living on land for all that long. And you'd think coming from the small space of a canal boat, I'd have this lovely serene space. But actually looking around, I've got about four overflowing toy boxes. I don't know if kids just like <laughs> pink plastic, even though I don't try and buy it, it just migrates towards us. And I don't even try and do the colour thing with Aisha. Like I want her to enjoy all colours, but she definitely flocks towards anything sparky or pink regardless of what I'd like her to to want <laughs> to be honest that sounds like my son my yeah, son well, this is, is it well absolutely and, all know, things pink... glitter and unicorns yeah like, and loves pink, it. pink was traditionally a male color until the early 1900s because yes. it was red was seen as the powerful color so I don't know where the community sent this cultural sense that pink has to be for girls absolutely not and then in front of me on the table I've got my computer I've got the cat and hat book I've got all this year's artwork from Aisha, which is too precious, isn't it, to throw away? But there's such an abundance of it. Like, what do you do with all the drawings? I got divorced last week, which... Congratulations. Um, yes, is, is a positive thing in my life. I've got my decree absolute paperwork in front of me and uh, a frog hat, because why not? <laughs> that was quite it a long like answer a weird... to your question, wasn't it? Uh, no, I love it. This is it's a controversial thing to say, but I think divorce can be a very positive thing. Absolutely. I know that only in America, however, I do know that divorce parties are becoming a thing. Yeah, even consider it because I'd, <laughs> well, I'd married overseas. And, well, I never had a hen party because I was pregnant quite quickly when I'd met my ex-husband. It's, it's nice to have a reason to get together with your mates to celebrate, but actually that's not how I feel. I, I went into marriage fully hoping I got my happy ever after. It didn't work out like that. And divorce is absolutely the right thing, both for me and my daughter. It it improves our safety and improves my mental health. So there's loads of positives for it. But at the same time, it's that bittersweetness because it's the symbolic. No, this wasn't the plan. I wanted us to last forever. It was the right thing for it to finish. But but yeah, so some positive and some in a bittersweet sense. Mm, Absolutely. So lots to unpick already but (laughs) you mentioned that you were pregnant when you first got married but actually I almost like to go back earlier than that Mm -hmm. so I can hear a northern accent where are you from so I was brought up in Shropshire so for those that don't know the area literally halfway between Birmingham and Manchester beautiful county really lovely I've still got loads of friends back there but I left at 18 to go to Nottingham to do my initial nurse training which was in 1999 I then did overseas work which we'll probably get to with um Medicine Sans Frontier, MSF or Doctor Without Borders, which included years away at a time. So a lot of my late 20s, I was quite mobile. I've sofa surfed for quite extensive times and then lived on a canal boat in Nottingham and travelled around quite a lot. 
And then I've been in Dorset. That's the worst Dorset accent in the world. <laughs> I love local accents. Like one of my colleagues goes, ah, have you got any allergies? I'm just like something allergies. really, something like really melts inside. <laughs> I just, yeah, I feel really a real fondness. So I think, yeah, I think some of my words pluck between Queen's English and different local accents that I've picked up over the years. I'm from Birmingham, so like oh, that, okay, you know, yeah. it comes out a little bit when I've had a few, but other than that, I'm very aware that I've got a very Queen's English sounding voice, <laughs> which sometimes I have to dial down because otherwise I get mega judgment. But Doesn't it unconsciously? It does. Voices definitely do. Oh my God, this could be another podcast in itself. <laughs> like I've just had a shameless obsession. Okay, so firstly, you, you said a few things, but namely sofa serving, canal boat and also MSF. So it sounds like you've got quite an eclectic bone in you. Would you say that's true? My mum has asked me whether I look for complicated ways of living on purpose. and I, I don't, absolutely. But also, I do think I try and keep an open mind about what is the right way to live in this particular time. And also financially, so with the overseas work, on the whole, it was voluntary. You're voluntary with MSF for the first 12 months in the field, and the field could be a war zone or it could be a refugee camp. And I did three overseas projects with MSF. And then you do get a payment afterwards, but it's not a payment compared to a wage in the UK. But I really, really wanted to do the aid work. It was even from a young child, I was really moved by the next news article of a tsunami or things like live aid in the 80s. So I had always wanted a skill set to be helpful to people that I perceived as being suffering. As a five-year-old, you can't specifically have a life plan, but definitely that very childlike response of, I want to help, I want to be useful, this stuff, like people shouldn't starve to death. I still feel as an adult, there are some things that we all still can't fully be at peace with. So I went into my nurse training at 18, expecting to do some form of humanitarian aid, well, hoping to. And then I was 26 when I went to South Sudan for a year, which was post-conflict, but South Sudan had been 50 years of civil war. That had ruined hospitals, it ruined infrastructure and education. One in eight died in childbirth, which is obviously horrific. More women died in childbirth, which is still a fact today than complete secondary education. So obviously a really complex place for women. Also low social status and really limited access to healthcare. But before I went, I was living with this guy and I thought he was probably going to be my happy ever after. But One of the things about working in a war zone, and we saw wonderful things, brilliant things, like I was involved in a triplet birth vaginally, which was just awesome. It was amazing. Oh, my God. All the triplets survived in this war zone. But the two sides of humanitarian aid is, yes, the vast majority of people that came to us, we absolutely saved their lives. But the other side of it is, one was with this mum who delivered triplets, Grace. There had to come the day where I also waved them back off into the war zone where they're going to cross landmine fields and be exposed to malaria and schistosomiasis and red cobras and black mambas. And I couldn't protect women that came to me outside of the hospital. It was always horrendous to discharge anybody. I think I came back really, I mean, stupidly looking back. I think I came back from the conflict zone, like expecting to have this sense of, I don't know, fulfillment, which makes me cringe Mm. now. Like I'd done my bit, completely said in inverted commas. And how big's a bit? And not everybody is doing their bit. So there's, you see so much horror, if I'm honest, so much trauma, so much unresolved pain. Not wanted to get like too low, but one of the women that I worked with, she had no access to a midwife in her village. She was pregnant. Her baby had died, very sadly. But then the baby's Mm -hmm. body then didn't deliver. And it had eroded a hole that went from her uterus into her bladder and bowel. So urine and feces constantly leaked through her vagina. She was septic and her family had deserted her because 
essentially the smell was so bad. And, you know, I, I still can't get my heart around that level of suffering for her. And one of the mm. things about humanitarian aid is sometimes you have to bear witness to the people that you can't save. And mm. témoignage, the French word for the philosophy of bearing witness to humanitarian crises, and then speaking out on their behalf is another reason why we're talking here today, to speak out mm. um, in the hope that their lives may somehow be improved. But I came back a bit broken. And then this great guy that I'd been living with, I thought I'd get my happy ever after. I still didn't know how to, people would say, oh, how was your gap year? How was your, did you have fun? You know, oh did, did you have a brilliant time? And I was like, no, but then not knowing also how to frame it in that I completely acknowledged that the women I'm talking about should absolutely be saying their own story. Absolutely. I am coming from a point of white privilege because I'm educated. I'm from a middle-class family. I got to fly out of the war zone. I 100% acknowledge that they should be saying their own story. But for the women that didn't make it and the women that didn't have education and agency, I do still believe that it is my sense of duty to speak out on their behalf with the complete understanding that it should be them. Absolutely. And it's this gap year. Now, I did a little shudder when you said yeah. that because you mentioned Live Aid earlier and a lot of the white saviour stuff that we talk about these days in the context of recent events and raised awareness and everything that there is still this attitude like you go to a third world country and you paint a shed and then you come back and you're like oh that was fun I helped it's it's extremely complicated but one of the reasons I joined MSF is that the vast majority of all donated money does go to beneficiaries. And after working with them, if it hadn't been our hospital, because of the war and the political complexity, they wouldn't have had any access to healthcare at all. So MSF works impartially. It's not a government agency. It does get to work where a lot of people aren't able to work because of politics. Mm. But I think what I've learned is that you have to see humanitarian aid as more like an A&E department, which is it's, it's an awful yeah. example, actually, think about it. But if you bear with me, so say somebody has a heart attack, they have to go into A&E or a cardiac cath lab and have the emergency input, have the stenting or the drugs or whatever course of action so they survive the heart attack. But then you do need this wider team. You need the GP and you need the rehabilitation. So I kind of feel like the emergency humanitarian aid is helping people survive that moment of crises. But unless you have that tertiary care, one organisation like MSF cannot be responsible for all that multitude of things. No, so it's absolutely essential that MSF is there. Absolutely. But mm. unless the world change and the politics change, then we have to have that feeling of discharging women back to the war zone. Looking back now, of course, I couldn't save everybody in a geographical area the size of Belgium. To do that, you'd need as many hospitals and infrastructure as we have here. From a perspective now, I can forgive myself for the patients I couldn't save. But at the time, I was desperate to atone. And so I came back to the UK. I retrained as a midwife. I got my first degree in midwifery because I've never studied so hard in my life. You said that you retrained, completed your training yes. as a midwife yes. before. But you said that you're in South Sudan doing midwifery-related things. Absolutely. So what? So I went out as an emergency nurse to South Sudan with MSF. That was my job. My job description was a nurse. And in my clinic in the middle of nowhere, in this war zone, there was literally no other access to healthcare at all. I was working with one other aid worker who was a guy called James, who was in his 60s. And when I first met him, he had a, well, he still does, he had a shaved head, handlebar moustache. He was an ex-Hell's Angel. His mum had been heroin addicted when he was born. He was an alcoholic until his 40s. He then had this near-death experience and knew that he had two choices. He either lived or died and he chose to live. Became a Zen Buddhist and retrained as a nurse. 
had done 20 years in IT nursing and, and now was atoning for his sins of his past by doing aid work. So James, yeah, he'd stepped out the dust and he was going to be my only international partner for the next year. And I was really desperately wanted to like him. But when I first saw him, I just thought, you look a bit of a dick, to be honest. <laughs> and we're, we're now best friends and he absolutely knows that I describe him like that. He's now late 70s. He's, he's the most brilliant man I've ever known. But yeah, we had, I think I'd been there, I don't know, let's say three nights. And then in the middle of the night, a woman had come to us. Her baby had been born and survived. She was in the nearby village, so she could walk to us, but the placenta hadn't been born, the retained placenta. And at term, the placenta has about 800 mils of blood run through it every minute. You know, it's, if you don't birth your placenta, it can be an extremely life-threatening condition. She was bleeding profusely, and we're in darkness, we're in head torches. We had, like, mosquitoes around us and moths and crickets were bombarding us. Um, James just turned to me and said, I don't do women's health. Literally that nonchalantly. And went to help the baby. and I basically had a box of equipment that we'd run with, turned my MSF obstetric emergencies book. In my head, I knew it was retained placenta. I'd had quite a lot of training with MSF, but I wasn't a qualified midwife. Turned the page in the book to retain placenta and basically remove the placenta manually whilst looking at the book. Um, so that, that was my yeah, baptism of fire, which, and <laughs> oh again, like listening to this from here, why isn't there an obstetrician there? Why isn't there a midwife there? Absolutely should. That woman should not have had an untrained midwife with her. But what, what else were you supposed to do? Just leave her to die? This, what? Well, you didn't have it. a choice. You saved her life. Yeah. And I was, I and mean, afterwards, James yeah. was like, yeah, you saved her life. What a hero. And I, <laughs> I was like, no, absolutely not. There is, There are no heroes in war zones except for birthing women. It was so messy and I was so scared. I had that feeling, you know, when you go over the top of a roller coaster and then you're not sure if you're going to poo yourself. If I'm honest, that's how I felt. That's not heroic. Yes, what we did, save her but in context it was flawed we've got the hollywood portrayal of heroism but if you actually think about soldiers in world war ii or the people fighting for their lives in ukraine now but i would say that probably everyone is on the cusp of shitting themselves most of the time that's it and it's one of the reasons of why i did want to write my book because when i came home other people were like oh how's your gap year or oh my god you're amazing and actually it's chaotic and it's horrible aid work is horrible it is so essential, but it is also really complicated. And I ended up coping with the complexity yeah. of it by, if I'm honest, by partying too hard, by sleeping with people I probably shouldn't, like really trying to find my happiness in the most unhealthy ways. As I said before, I really had to learn to forgive myself for what we couldn't achieve. On those days when we had obstructed labour, but we couldn't get a flight in, I had to sit with women who, who lost their babies under my watch. Mm. And I don't know if anybody can ever really be at peace with that. I'm not sure. Just knowing a bit more of your story further on, we know a bit about what you did pre-baby, but in terms of the origins to where you are now, how old were you when you left South Sudan and what happened next? Yeah, so I was, oh, I lose track, 27, let's say, around then. <laughs> and I left South Sudan. 2010, went out to Haiti, and then I had one week off, which looking back, maybe wasn't the most sensible choice. I went back out then to a Rohingya refugee camp in Bangladesh, which are arguably the most persecuted people in the world. The Rohingya people have fled persecution in Myanmar, which has also said Myanmar, which has also said Burma. I tend to say Myanmar because the people I worked with said that and there's different politics with different names and I turned 30 while I was working there and I was 
overall in charge of all female and pregnancy health in a refugee camp of 30,000 people. We didn't have a birth unit when I arrived and most births were unsupported in the camps and the camps were hell on earth. It was completely unorganised. People at that time, the stateless, which means you have no political, you don't belong to any country. The stateless Rohingya refugees at that point weren't allowed access to other forms of healthcare. We don't need to get into all the politics of it. Basically, MSF was the only provision of healthcare. And again, we had so many successes, but it's it's the women that I lost that I, I always think of Adab. So she was 16, we think. Oh, and Adab had been raped in the camp because there was no police protection and because of the perceived sin of pregnancy outside of childbirth it is possible her family could have forced her to marry her rapist to save her from the perceived sin and without realizing there were other options for her she had opted to have an unsafe abortion within the camp where essentially a sharpened stick was used i hadn't met her before until she came to me in the clinic further along the line and she had uncontrolled bleeding and sepsis And every single thing that I could do for Adab, I did. The camp, even the hostel, was too dangerous for us to be in at night. So I had to leave as the sun set and I had to leave her. And that night she died. Mm -hmm. So it was under under my care. So we had a full functioning hostel, but surgery would have saved her. So I know the the topic of abortion can be divisive, but nobody on earth Mm -hmm. surely could argue that Adab had any other choice apart from an abortion and the sad things you can never ban abortion it's important in this row versus way you can only ban safe abortion absolutely so after that i was completely determined we had to open a safe female health center in where women could have access to contraception to stop them being pregnant if they didn't want to in the first place access to emergency contraception and access to a safe birth so from scratch had to hire builders get all the bamboo in and we built a whole maternity unit Again, the politics are really complicated of why that hadn't happened before. But basically, I felt that without full access, the women were still very vulnerable. And then at that time in Bangladesh, midwives weren't recognized as a profession in their own right. They are now. So I hired some amazing Bangladeshi nurses that we then trained up to be midwives. And that birth unit still runs today. So that was 2011. I just can't quite believe that now you're a NHS midwife in a Dorset hospital so yeah. <laughs> just like wait so and also that you were a long time in the third world and in the international aid world and I know that can be a really difficult place to leave so mm. what led to you leaving that world and how did you get to your first pregnancy yeah so after South Sudan because of the adrenaline cortisol stress hormones I didn't have a period for a year and a half I had no libido, wasn't in a relationship, and I didn't really recognise this as being trauma-related. I just thought, oh, maybe that's how life is now. And it was later seeing a gynaecologist that they felt my cortisol levels were still really high. I then had, on my Bangladesh mission, a relationship with a guy who I was completely besotted by, this beautiful French man, and <laughs> oh, I still feel sad now. Very sadly, he broke my heart. He left the project at his end of mission and basically was never in touch again. But I just had that first inkling. I think it is maternal instinct. I'd had this imagination of what our kids would look like. And I think in my 20s, I'd really hated that sense of people talking about like a ticking clock or maternal instinct. I was like, oh God, how naff. I'm a feminist. You know, I'm never going to feel like that. But actually, I was in love in my early 30s. And absolutely, I just had this vision of what our life would be like together. And then after the Bangladesh mission, my third one, I did have some form of a breakdown. I think partly... I had a broken heart, but also my mental health was extremely bad. 
it's, it's called a flashback, but I perceived it as a hallucination and I'd had a birth that had gone very well. There was no drama, there was nothing, care was completely safe. But I could see that the baby was alive and well in front of me. I was doing the routine, baby checks, but every sense of me, just for a moment, maybe, I don't know, let's say two seconds, three seconds, I felt I was back in the camp. Like I could smell the wood smoke from people's homes. I could smell the latrines. And my eyes could see this was an okay baby, but all my other senses, my smell, my taste, my hearing, I thought it was a dead baby. And it was only lasted for a second, but straddling these two worlds was really scary. I left that shift and went home sick. And the other midwife had taken over the care of the mum baby, so they weren't put at any risk whatsoever. I then was signed off for a month, inverted commas again, but signed off with stress from my GP. Basically, my GP at the time had said, oh, you look far too well to have PTSD which it was, you know, a form of PTSD. What, sorry. <laughs> I know. Sorry. <laughs> okay. That's so the, actually what she... Oh. Yeah, so I was signed off with stress. I've always looked like quite a well person, even when I'm not well. I'm very good at burying this mental ill health and, and I'm still able to work. I'm still able to remember somebody's birthday. I still turn up at work on time, but manifesting it in really unhealthy ways, like the partying and the series of one night stands again looking for that happiness, looking for love, but in really not love. And there's nothing more lonely than a one night stand because it almost feels like love. And then you wake up with the hangover and with, I find one night stands just really desolate. And after this mm. flashback, after this hallucination, again, I just, like a switch was flicked. I was like, I don't want this to be my life. I don't want to be this unwell person. And so I took time off work with stress and moved into a Buddhist center, which was brilliant because there was no alcohol, there was no partying. And it was my first real introduction to mindfulness and meditation, which when you're on the outside looking in, mindfulness can look a bit like, ew, that's so like tacky. I don't know. <laughs> but actually, it's just that sense of everybody is complicated. But let's have this really healthy, structural way to try and still be kind and try and still be mindful and try and still be open and try and still be thankful and practice gratitude, which was absolutely brilliant. I got back in touch with MSF to say my mental health is really bad. And they paid for me to have really excellent trauma-based CBT, so cognitive behavioral therapy. And at this point, had you decided I'm not going to go back to MSF work? What was it that made you leave? Yeah, I, I think it, it was two sides. It was that maternal instinct that had been sparked. Some people can do aid work and have a home life and have a functioning, fun, brilliant relationship. Absolutely. I knew I didn't have the capacity. For me, it was either a life of aid work, which was brilliant and it was fulfilling and it was scary and it was adrenaline and it was the highs and the lows and the chaos, but actually having a relationship that is healthy and it's balanced and a home life in where a child can be born into that is nurturing and supportive. I didn't feel I had the capacity to hold both simultaneously. So I, as soon as I had left my Bangladesh mission with MSF, I knew I was retiring from international humanitarian aid work. So had you met your person that you were going to have no, children I, with at this point? I, so over the time of the Buddhist Because the center, pressure's all very well, but yeah, you need a partner. Oh, absolutely. Or you need the sperm, you know, in a practical sense, wherever absolutely, that sperm comes yeah. from. So I had lived in the Buddhist centre and then felt a lot better. And then I'd bought my canal boat and it was a specialist midwife at this point for women living with HIV. So I had a baseline contract and then I could do extra hours. You know, I then wasn't with a partner and I still felt this drawn to like aid work in some description and went to teach in 2015 and the first ever midwifery course in Bangladesh, which was brilliant. But because I no longer worked for MSF, I was then free to travel and free to make friends. And I um, 
took up surfing lessons and my surfing instructor was very handsome and was lovely company. Basically a relationship developed. We got pregnant and I was thrilled. I was absolutely thrilled to be pregnant, even though I'd only known him 10 weeks, which I know from the outside looking is like, ah, but actually I was so happy and he was a wonderful person. So I just thought I've got my happy ever after. Finally, it's my chance. Very sadly, we miscarried on our wedding day, which is unfortunate. I'm so sorry. I'd worked with miscarriage as an A&E nurse. I'd worked with miscarriage as a midwife. And I'd seen the suffering, but I hadn't really understood, if I'm honest, until I'd experienced it myself. It was really scary. I didn't know if the bleeding would stop. I didn't know if I had retained products and things. And I think for me, it was those two lines on a pregnancy test had put my life on a completely new trajectory. And then to lose that. You make plans and you think about a a date. It was a grief. Yeah. I did still get married even though we hadn't known each other all that long, I was still desperate for my happy ever after. My experience of miscarriage was that of a deep sense of grief and loss and fear, not knowing if I could ever get pregnant again. I didn't know. I'd never been pregnant before. And then the outcome of that was I had one period and then I got pregnant again. And then with that pregnancy, I had a 12-week scan, which was normal, and we moved back to England. I decided it was safe. I was going to say, yeah. so were you in Bangladesh or Yeah, UK? so I was in yeah. Bangladesh at the start and then we moved back to the UK um, as a married okay. couple. Um, I was working back in the NHS, but it was also quite hard to be surrounded by other people with threatened miscarriage, with threatened baby loss as a pregnant midwife. It was quite difficult for me to then balance my own need and my own pregnancy need. So mm. I was practicing my mindfulness, really trying to reduce my stress. But very sadly, at our 20-week scan, we found out that my unborn had a very rare brain tumour. Um, it was a one in a million. What are the Which chances? Just, of yeah, it's just really shitty, to be honest. It's um, And it felt really unfair, I think. That's my honest. It felt really unfair. I felt of all the things I've looked for in war zones, in refugee camps, all the million ways I've looked for signs and problems in other people's pregnancies and tried to keep them and their babies safe, that something called a cerebral teratoma had affected me, which I'm honest, I'd never even heard of. Over the next month, we had MRIs and we spoke to different teams and spoke to neurosurgeons, but the brain tumour had grown really fast so basically unanimous from all the health professionals I went to was that she couldn't survive outside of me so at six months on paper it is a choice so I had to make the decision to birth her which technically is an abortion but I'd hope people will listen to this compassionately to me because what choice did I have right you know her head had grown so babies on the inside intrauterine they swallow and excrete the amniotic fluids constantly she wasn't able to do that because she's overproducing amniotic fluid which in turn could kill me it's extremely Um, dangerous it it could could be dangerous for me and it could get to a point where her head was too big to be able to deliver vaginally but a preterm section anyway so all the things combined but it still had to be my choice so I chose you know I'm saying that with pain in my chest but I chose to deliver at six months knowing that she would die so I was induced so and delivered vaginally, but then had a retained placenta. So my first ever birth in South Sudan was a retained placenta. And then I then experienced it, which is not unusual with preterm birth, and ended up having a manual removal of my placenta and then ended up in emergency theatre with, sorry, <laughs> with my voice catching, but had um, okay. a general anaesthetic and had the rest of the placenta moved a week later. So God, you know, child loss, baby loss. Oh my God, this was six and a half years ago and I'm functioning and I'm well and I'm mentally well. 
the loss didn't break me, but it can still rip me in half. If something just triggers you and suddenly you find you're sitting on the kitchen floor crying and you hadn't even realised it was even sat there. So baby loss is something that I will always live with. So apart from the pain I feel, I am enormously grateful that I had access Mm -hmm. to the NHS and we all have a responsibility to fight for the NHS. I know there are maternity scandals and absolutely I hear that women are suffering. I do. And I'm not saying that ignoring their pain, but we are all a lot worse off without the NHS. So I can still practice gratitude simultaneously with grief. I mean, having to catch my own breath for a second. I just, just so sorry that you went through that and I can't even imagine It's really shit. And I don't have any, I'm a writer, I'm an author, and I still don't have any better words than that. It's shit. It is shit. So, I mean, taking us to after that experience, how did you return to work and recover from that? And also going back with people in that field who must have known exactly what you went through, who must have supervised those Mm -hmm. sorts of incidences. What was that like? So on the day I went in to deliver Fatima, outside the hospital, there was about 10 women who were fully pregnant, who were smoking and chatting together. And I found it really difficult to not feel anger towards them. I think it was that sense of injustice. I had done everything I felt humanly possible to keep that pregnancy safe. I was looking at how much tuna I was eating in a week. I was looking at making sure I didn't have too much coffee. You know, all the guidance that I help other people navigate, I was also following. I did move on from that, that sense of anger because actually what is that woman's story we know smoking in pregnancy isn't safe and approaching that from a compassionate mindset what is it in her life that has led up to decision making where you're doing something that you know is directly negatively affecting the unborn so it's important to say I I did process this and actually what is fair it wasn't fair that Adab was killed from a stick there isn't such thing as fair Mm -hmm. all we can do is navigate and try and make the best choices for us And until we speak to women individually, maybe that woman used to smoke 10 bongs a night and actually that cigarette is still a positive progress for her. So context is absolutely essential. So I did move on from there, but I was then pregnant again after a month. It wasn't very sensible. It was my third pregnancy, but my need to be pregnant was almost animalistic. My arms ached for the baby I couldn't hold. After a month, that is Yeah, so I had had one period and then I was pregnant again, which again... Literally, that's not medical advice by any stretch of the imagination, but my innate womanly need, I was desperate to be pregnant again. And then I'd gone to Bangladesh in the recovery time after Fatima, my daughter had died. Found out I was pregnant there, but knew that we needed money, we needed to work. My husband would need a visa. So I returned to maternity leave because Fatima was born alive. She was alive with me for about nearly an hour, which actually was one of the best times of my life that hour it's, it doesn't look it from the outside but actually it was wonderful because she was so peaceful and just looked so beautiful and I was worried I think because of this brain tumor that somehow I'd be disgusted by her but actually she was the best baby I'd ever seen in my whole life when that hour was something I really cherish the legal side of it because she was born alive I was on maternity leave but ended the maternity leave early because I needed to work and then, like all the pregnant women that I was working with, every time they were like caught the sight of my new bump, my third pregnancy, they'd be like, oh, is it your first? And they were sort of like, oh, the midwife's going to have to learn to be a mum. I wanted to say about Fatima, she's my daughter. I know I lost her, but she's still my daughter. I'm still a mum. But I thought, these pregnant women, they don't need to be reminded of baby loss when they're pregnant. That's not fair. So I'd find myself saying, oh, yeah, it's my first. 
and then silently apologizing to Fatter in my head, but trying to laugh along with the new mum jokes. And because often as a midwife who's never had children, for women who are having children, there can be, I don't know, what's the right word? It's not patronizing, but almost a bit of smirking. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge type. You don't even know what you're talking about. But I sometimes say to people, I've never had a heart attack, but I'm a specialist cardiac nurse now. Um, I was like, I've never had a heart attack. You you definitely won't be with you if you're having a heart attack. So you don't have to be able to fully experience it. So I was also working in a unit. Nottingham has had a maternity scandal. It is being investigated. It was at the time that I was working there and it was an unpleasant place to work in the NHS. We were understaffed. Mm. So I think I got to about 32 weeks and I thought, this isn't okay for my unborn baby. She comes first. I knew I was having a girl. I was going to find out at scan what sex she was. And then I wasn't going to tell anybody and keep it secret. And I took two steps out of the scan department. And somebody said, oh, how was your scan? I went, she's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> it lasted all of five oh, minutes, what? keeping it to myself. <laughs> but I got to 32 weeks. And I thought, these birthing women, they absolutely need somebody that is fully invested in being here. So I yeah. took maternity leave in 32 weeks and then had a really lovely, like, canal side life, not working. It was the end of the summer. And it was seeing all the, the swans and the geese and just really chill and out really trying to heal and focus on the positives for my for my new unborn I then had a really wonderful birth with her in Nottingham you have to remember with maternity scandals is that absolutely we hear those women that were suffering but the midwives stretched themselves so thin but the vast majority of women still had really positive birth experience and mm. I was really privileged mm. I was really lucky I, I had a, a wonderful water birth with Aisha and I had my friends were my midwives my husband, through his own choices, um, decided not to be at any of the births. And, and Aisha was born. And I just thought, I don't want to be a midwife at the moment. I don't want to be in these stretch units. I don't want to be feeling I'm not giving other women the full care they deserve. So I then took three years out of midwifery. So we were living on the boat. I was on maternity leave. And it was when Aisha started to crawl. I thought, I don't know if boat life is going to work for me, actually. <laughs> when she was mobile. <laughs> Some people do it and they're brilliant. Oh but God. for me, like my um, risk assessment was just firing off on all cylinders. Yeah. You can, you can make it <laughs> safe. You can water. make it safe, but you have to take steps to make it safe. Anyway, she was starting to crawl. So I thought, I'm going to sell the boat. And I could live anywhere by that point. And my friends in Nottingham were all settled with their family lives. And friends from Shropshire where I was brought up, they were settled with their family lives. So I so literally, I thought, oh, do you know what? I'd like to live by the sea. So that's how I moved to Weymouth in Dorset. And at the end of that maternity leave, I went back to nursing. So I did nearly a year of maternity leave, then two years of nursing cardiology, which I absolutely love. And it's also family-friendly hours. So it's a cardiac cath lab for emergency heart attacks and emergency pacemakers. But it's a Monday to Friday unit where I work. So it's brilliant because Aisha's always been spent on childcare because then my ex-husband and I divorced. There were lots of facts involved and probably worth just noting for couples that have experienced baby loss, it can be really testing on the relationship as well. There were other factors for us, but we grieved in very different ways and there was a big cavern between us and we ended up divorcing. He is now not on the scene at all, so I completely lone parent. But I was always dependent then on childcare, so I was working in the cath lab and life was kind of good, but I just missed midwifery. I missed for all its hardships, connecting with women and birthing people. But where you don't have the faff of British culture where we're, it's like this conversation with you now, we've really got stuck in and we're really sharing space. You know, I love that. I love that sense of connection with my community. And midwifery is one way into that because you're automatically transported into an intimate time in somebody's life that on the whole, the vast majority of the time is a healthy, positive point of their life. It's an absolute privilege to share people's pregnancy with them. And I'd really missed it, but I didn't know if I could go back. And then really fortunately for me, where I work at Dorchester, our matron is 
exemplary. She is brilliant. And I just had one meeting. I said, I don't know if I can come back. I don't know about family-friendly hours. And she just said, why don't you just try? You know, why don't you just do one shift? At that point, she went to a nursery. And it was a brilliant nursery, but it didn't open till 7.30. So I couldn't get to the hospital till 8. And the midwifery shift started at 7.30. And then in the evening, it closed at 6. But the midwifery shifts were finishing at 7.30. So I automatically couldn't do the long day shifts. But she said, Mm. I'm more than happy to do family-friendly hours been a nurse for 20 years I've been a midwife now for I lose track I'm bringing a wealth of experience but I can't do the shift so she basically let me have a contract that was no nights no weekends no bank holidays and family friendly hours within childcare. but absolutely loved it like the first birth I was back with I was like I do love this if you take away yeah the stress I do love and this sounds a bit arrogant but I think I'm good at it I love the space but I think clinically I'm sound but also I love 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 sharing space with people and connecting them with it and midwifery can be amazing for that so I then had a contract that was family friendly but was paying for childcare, and I realized that working part-time and I think after tax and after student loans and after pension contributions I think I was taking home about 1,300 a month and I was spending 900 pounds a month on childcare. so I was and then you're waiting up like is this like is it worth uh. is it worth me working so I then did have some universal credit which then was ended because I had my contract for the book which then basically I had an advance that was then meant I wasn't eligible for universal credit so I did the tax-free child care but I was still paying about 600 pounds a month on child care were you receiving any financial support from your ex-partner no nothing at that time Oh, excellent. Um, so I... Just gets we, better, yeah, doesn't so it? Yeah, there so there's probably... There's, there was some, like, complicated politics of it all. But no, at that time, I wasn't. And we split up. I think it had taken me a month to tell them that we'd split up. And then I did tell them, but then they claimed back... I think they claimed back £1,000. So I owed £1,000. And I was taking home about, I don't know, £400 a month. And my mortgage is more than that. And, you know, and then we've got our gas electricity. So I was, I was minus per month. Um, and I, to feed Aisha, so to, to feed her a proper nutritional diet, I ended up feeding myself for less than a pound a day just to be able to feed her. Sorry. That just took me by surprise saying that. Because it's so much better now. Like looking back, I'm like, oh God, that was horrible. Sorry, I wasn't that's just, feel emotional at that point. No, I think I've realised like how far I've come do. since then. Especially because she can go to school, so it's free. But yeah, it was pretty a horrible way to work. And then we had COVID. So I was in Dorset, not really knowing anybody. And at the end of the relationship, I found it quite hard to make friends. Because when your life is full of this relationship that's ending, it's really difficult to then do the chit chat for making a new friendship group. But also a job and having Absolutely. a toddler and by that, you know, yourself and, and all the sleep and the grief, disturbances. You know, and the baby loss grief and all yeah. that. So by this point, I was working two jobs. So I worked part-time as a cardiac nurse and part-time as a midwife. And so the relationship had ended. Then it was COVID and it was really scary those first few months looking back in COVID because we didn't have vaccines, oh, we, we didn't, didn't, know have we didn't really yeah. know what it was, but also we were banned from PPE unless somebody was COVID symptoms. So that you wouldn't run out. Well, yes, Matt Hancock, let's not yeah. rustle my feathers and obviously we knew about asymptomatic COVID transmission, even though the government now says they didn't. We all did. We all knew from the start that there was asymptomatic transmission. I was really cross because at one point, it was a month after the first COVID lockdown in the March, so by the middle of April 2020, Matt Hancock had gone on the radio and, and said that we're running out of PPE because nurses are overusing them. And I just, I'm, I'm still really angry about that. 
I know it's years ago and I know we should all be getting over COVID, but I'm still really cross. It's a form of gaslighting. And what I'm cross about is that I've been to war zones and I have taken risks. And that was my choice. I was working in the NHS where I still should be protected by the Health and Safety at Work Act. And I was dropping my kid off at nursery. And then I was working with people and I was completely unprotected. And then I was going to pick her up. And I will take harm myself if I have to. I wanted to help my community. I wanted to work. It was a national crisis. I wanted to stand up. And I did extra shifts and I did over my hours and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, but then I picked her up and she wants to hug me. And she wants me to sit next to her and read her bedtime stories. And I have to breathe next to her to read her bedtime stories. And I don't know if my breath is going to kill her. And no mum should have to make the decision, especially if they know about baby loss. Like I, I understand my baby loss very clearly. But to feel that I could harm my child by going to work, I am still really angry that I was put in that position. And if they didn't have enough PPE, which we asked from the start to wear, if we didn't have enough PPE, if they'd have said, we are prioritising PPE for the symptomatic patients because they're more likely to harm the staff. Mm. I could have lived with that and I would have still worked. But to be told that we don't need it and to be told we've run out because we're overusing it, I am still really cross about that. And I think I'm allowed to be. And I'm not sure what would have to happen. I don't know what would have to happen for me to not be angry anymore. I think you'd need a time machine to not be angry about that. There's just no possible universe in which... Nothing like yeah. she can, my kid comes first. I don't have anything constructive yeah. to say. Like, <laughs> Aisha, my daughter Aisha, she comes first. She comes first in all the choices that I make. But then they even had this brain ache. Oh, maybe I won't work. Maybe I will not be that person that steps up. And then we had the clap for carers on the Thursday. So I was like, you're clapping me off to my death, potentially. We heard all the stories of nurses and midwives and doctors dying from COVID. You know, I felt like I'm not a martyr here. I go to work because I get paid. Yes, I enjoy my job. Yes, there are additional benefits. Yes, I love it. But I'm not a volunteer. I go to work because it is a paid job and I have to pay my bills. That's the bottom line. Mm. But then I thought, well, if I don't work and the hostel collapses, then who would Aisha go to if she got sick anyway? So it was impossible. I pendulated between working and not working. In reality, I worked every shift and did extras. But in my brain, I was still pendulating. Mm-hmm. Was the um, equivalent of them? They projected the Ukrainian flag onto the Home Office, and then whilst also not giving people visas. Yeah, assholes. <laughs> so it's just like well, it's that oh virtual God, signature. Getting really political, but, exactly. Well, just steer away from politics uh, as hmm. much as we can for a second. I find it quite difficult to steer away from politics, but there we go. I say um, we're all interlinked. This is it. Hi, sorry to interrupt. If you're feeling inspired by this episode to go back to work happy and confident, then what are you waiting for? I'm the founder of The Springback Guide, and it's an online series of videos just six minutes long each so that anyone can fit it into mum life, focusing on putting yourself first again, getting your confidence back, working better with your partner, and also showing you how to figure out whether you're in the right job at all. And of course, what to do if you're still not sure. If you're already back at work, but feeling stuck and unhappy, it's for you too. It's all designed and led by me to provide you with amazing career and life coaching at a fraction of the price of face-to-face coaching. If you're still not sure or just want to see where I hang out, you can come and chat to me on Instagram at springbackguide. Okay, sorry about that. Let's crack on with the episode. Your practice must have really changed pre-pregnancies versus Mm. post-pregnancy. So what would you say the main things that have changed in your practice since Mm. becoming pregnant yourself? That's interesting. Because with the overseas work as well, it could be very easy to see risk everywhere. 
and see all pregnancy as risk. But also we're doing people a disservice if we don't recognise there is risks to pregnancy, right? But it's there is a risk and we manage that risk and we focus on the positive. And to me, a positive birth experience isn't necessarily about what it can be, about meditating your baby out in a forest surrounded by, you know, heart players. That would be absolutely lovely if that's the choice. But positive birth experience can also be a fully medicalized induction of labor with an epidural and a cesarean section. But I think to me, positive birth experience is about, do you feel informed? Was it safe? Did you feel you had a choice? Were you listened to? Were you respected? Was there dignity? So in some ways, from my own experience and from the overseas stuff, it shouldn't actually matter what my experience is or where I'm working because I should approach my role as a midwife as maintaining dignity, maintaining informed choice and and all the other things to make a positive birth experience, regardless of what choices that woman is making even if that woman is choosing to smoke. And that's the important point that we're making, isn't it? It's her choice to make. We obviously prefer if women don't smoke because we know it has a negative effect on the baby. I think one thing with baby loss that really helped me was just, it helped me piece together about my role in aid work of sometimes you have to bear witness to suffering and then speak out about it. Because I could never be okay with that before. For the women that I felt I let down in South Sudan, bearing witness seemed dreadful because I'm witnessing their suffering. I'm witnessing what we can't do. And what good does that do to anybody? But actually, when I have my own baby loss, my midwife, Helen Lowenstein, that's sadly no longer with us, she was with me every step of the way and she witnessed my grief. And it meant that I wasn't alone in there. It meant that I wasn't in this scary space without a light in this dark world. She was definitely like my light in the dark tunnel. So actually, I really understood that bearing witness to somebody's experience, even if you can't make it better, is really valid. Because I specialise now as a teenage specialist midwife in the NHS. So I caseload somewhere between 16 and 20 families where obviously the woman is a teenager. And I really hope that sort of the buzz term for it would be trauma-informed care. So you're, I want to hear people. If somebody says that they have a small concern or a silly worry or a big concern or a big worry, I'd hope that I could be a safe space where they can voice that. And then I can use my clinical knowledge to be able to guide and navigate through what needs to come next from it. And so I hope it's made me a better midwife. But I don't know, you probably have to ask the women that I work with. I can't always take away people's pain and their suffering. I've had women that have had stillbirths and baby loss within my cohort. Unfortunately, I'm not this magical person that can heal the world that I wouldn't hoped I could have been. But I do hope that I help maintain women's safety and respect and dignity throughout whatever their birthing experience is. It's really interesting that you keep using that word dignity because it just really resonated with me. I've never heard people discuss that term dignity in the context of birth, which sounds totally ridiculous because, of course, dignity is a huge part of birth. And And a lot of people laugh after saying, well, all my dignity went out the window. And I was like, oh, it shouldn't. Yeah, but it shouldn't. And you're so right because you're talking about positive birth experience and what does that mean? And I had two cesareans, one unplanned and another very much planned. And my first one was, yeah, birth itself was fine after birth not good but Mm. the second one was absolutely amazing it was amazing I couldn't have dreamed a more perfect birth and I I had so much dignity and how we use our medical language is so important because you know even things like vaginal exams they are optional like monitoring Mm. it is optional like blood tests scans they are optional 
we'd hope that on balance you would benefit from xyz because of this and this but it is your choice so i'm hoping it would be great if you did choose it because then you agree that you're going to benefit from it but actually everything is a choice in there and informed choice is really interesting Language language and coercive language one of the reasons I love caseloading with a small caseload of women is I can spend more time with them. And some people want to see me very briefly. Some people want to spend a lot of time to ask loads of questions. Some people don't. And until you're with somebody, you have that connecting professional friendship or professional connection with somebody, mm. then you, d- you don't know what those needs are. And sometimes the needs aren't always obvious as well. Oh, my God. I could literally talk to you forever. <laughs> Like, I'm just in love. Everything. Does everybody settle down? Go and open a bottle of wine. <laughs> I know. Oh my God, I'm going to have to come to Dorset. It's so far away. <laughs> right. I'm very conscious of time now. So I'm going to try and just pick two more questions to ask you. But obviously, you've managed to release this book. I- I'm so excited to read it. I have bought it. Thank Should you. be in your bank account shortly. <laughs> <laughs> but that must have been quite an experience to write when you are single mumming and mm. midwifing mm-hmm. and providing coviding. Yes. Yeah, so it must be incredible to finally have it out. It is. Yeah. So I started writing, honestly, about 12 years ago. So when I was in the field by head torch in my woman tent, um, trying to process what we'd seen that day. And then over time, I realized it had become like this testimonial for the women that didn't make it. They told me their stories and all the stories in the book are completely true, but they are anonymized to protect their identity just because with the war zone, I couldn't get consent from them to be included and, and some women couldn't make it. But also later when I went to therapy, I was having quite invasive dreams and having night sweats. And it was always complicated birth it was always that I couldn't save them and it was running through corridors like for hours and like just it it was horrid and the therapist I was with had suggested that writing down the dreams can in some ways disempower them and actually when I wrote them down it was like what am I going to do with all this writing like I'd be in a cafe scribbling notes down on a napkin and things and it was the biggest catharsis to write it down because I definitely had symptoms of PTSD but I also felt I had moral injury which is a similar mental health problem alongside PTSD, but it's a slight difference in that it's a fracturing of your sense of self because you yourself has overstepped your moral boundaries. Moral injury. So basically I went to South Sudan to save lives, but not only could I not sometimes, but I also had to stay around and see the outcome of me not being able to save lives. And it's like you can have a fractured sense of personality and it's often associated with profound sense of guilt and through writing the book and doing research around moral injury that I'd never heard of before, to be honest, it really started me on the path because the healing from moral injury is being able to forgive yourself. So writing the book and understanding from a perspective of telling the whole story, I finally did get the chance. And the writing of the book has been really healing. And then I thought, well, is this book, has it just been my own journey? And then we go back to the core philosophy of MSF, the Temoinage the bear witness and mm-hmm. speak out on behalf. And I thought, because I sat with it a lot because it's it should be the women telling their own story. Absolutely, I'm very privileged that I've been able to have a computer and I'm educated. So I'm a white woman. I shouldn't be the one telling other women who are predominantly black and Asian women's birth stories. I recognize that. But I sat with it once the book was nearly written. I did sit with it for probably another two years. But then nobody speaks out about them at all, especially for the women that died. So I did feel on balance, it was the right thing to print it, but I absolutely recognise the complexities of the white saviour complex, etc. And the book as well, I do highlight my failings. Yes, I highlight where we had these miraculous births, like the triplets, but I also do recognise where I didn't know enough or I didn't do enough. 
for women. And it's been really healing. The last few chapters were written in lockdown. But the thing was, because I was single at the time and everywhere was locked down, my little one would be in bed, you know, asleep by eight. So rather than drink wine and watch TV in the evenings, which I felt was my other choice, I'd write. So I'd sit cross-legged on, on my bed with my laptop and write, write and suddenly I'd look up and I'd accidentally pulled an all-nighter and I was still writing at four in the morning. And then mm. she'd then wake up at 5.30. I was like, oh, that wasn't the most sensible <laughs> oh, idea. <wow. laughs> yeah, and then it's been published by Bloomsbury, which is obviously a really big publishing house. I'm, I'm really grateful. I've got a brilliant agency. So yeah, I've, things just kind of, I'm really fortunate. Well, I'm pretty sure every single person who is listening is now buying your book. And it shows that, yeah, it's a testament to the book. But anybody who's a mum or who is pregnant, is there one thing that you would want them to walk away with from having read mm. your book? I guess probably the sense of connection and community that spans beyond our physical realm. But what I'd hope was that through the story of me in the book and the people I'm caring about, it would create a sense of community and connect birthing women, birthing people together, regardless of these boundaries beyond what we can necessarily imagine. Because at the end of it, a woman in South Sudan, yes, there's war, yes, there's tropical diseases, etc. But she wants the same as what we want, right? She wants safety, she wants security, she wants a home where her child's going to be nourished and nurtured and reach its potential. She wants love. She wants happiness. And that does connect all of us, doesn't it? And it doesn't and shouldn't matter about anything else, actually. We are all these fallible, wonderful, frail, dreadful, fantastic people. And we're all just doing our best. So I hope maybe, yeah, that would be great. Birth transcendence. Yes. <laughs> Oh my God. Well, if I could give you a round of applause, I would for really? myself. It won't really mean anything, but best conversation. It was just <laughs> so wonderful to talk to you. I'm honestly so grateful for your time. We've massively overrun. So for everyone who's listening, sorry, this is a longer episode than usual, but as <laughs> I, I hope did say, agree. I did warn you as a talker. This is the thing. <laughs> and it, it also did, it, it helps me appreciate why I found it so hard to talk about this stuff before because it kind of the context needs the space it, it took a book to describe this yeah you know? and there's so much more I want to ask but I just I can't I'll just Next have to the glass of wine in the pub deal <laughs> yes deal thank you so much I'm like grinning from ear to ear thank you oh, enjoy so the rest of really your day take care yeah you too thank you so much you made it you've reached the end of the Springback Guys podcast I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please rate it five stars to join everyone else in spreading the word about how to go back to work happy and confident after your baby. You can find me on Instagram at springbackguide or if you're feeling really inspired, head to springbackguide.com to go for it and invest in yourself. Okay, see you soon.